It's Mother's Day, and so today we have a question from one of our moms that we'll be diving into in our Ask Anything series, and the question is this, how can I worship God when my kids don't? Um, we said that uh, we're going to dive into the, um, the big and the difficult questions of life and faith in this series, and um, man, for as much as what we just celebrated, I don't know that the questions get more difficult than this one. Um, here, here's what I mean by that. Meg Meeker has written a phenomenal book on parenting where um, she describes having kids as, um, as if you're walking around with your heart on the outside of your chest. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I remember um, the first time they handed me Maddie, uh, our oldest, and um, I'm not a violent person, um, I've never so much, some of you are like, where is this going? Uh, I've never so much been in a fist fight in my life. Uh, I learned very on, early on um, that given my build, um, I would be a lot more successful if it ever came to it, using my words than my fists in a fight. So I, I've never really been a violent person, but the second they handed me our oldest daughter, um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, that if anyone messed with this little girl, um, I'd end up doing prison ministry from the inside. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is the, um, the, the beauty and the joy uh, and the terror of parenting. And this is why we celebrate moms today, that they would enter into that for us. And moms, it doesn't change as they get older, does it? No. And so the question we have before us this morning, um, it's a big one. It's a hard one. What, what do you do um, if your child that you love so much um, walks away from the God you love so much? Um, what do you, how do you go on worshiping God when someone that you love so much and is such a significant part of your life and heart doesn't? And, and, and you might not be a parent, but I think that's a relevant question for everyone in the room. Um, because I think we all have someone in our lives that we deeply love and desire to see them love Jesus, right? If you don't have that person in your life, you might be that person in someone's life, and we're super glad that you're here as well today. Today will be an interesting uh, kind of uh, behind-the-curtain view of uh, maybe how people have been um, praying for you and loving you, but we all have someone in our life, uh, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that we desperately want to see, know, and love Jesus, right? And so, as we go through the message today, I want to encourage you to have that person in your mind. Um, because the text we're going to look at this morning, it is not a Mother's Day specific text, um, but I do think it is going to speak powerfully into this question for moms, but really for all of us alike that have someone that we deeply love and deeply desire to know Jesus. And so as we go through the message, I'll be straight with you on the getting in here. It's Mother's Day. This is their day. So I'm going to give some specific application for the moms today. But I want you to have your person in mind because um, as the word of God is preached this morning, I believe that this truth is relevant to all of us that have somebody that we deeply love and deeply want to know, Jesus. That's what our text is about this morning. You ready? All right. Romans chapter 9. Um, we'll pick it up at the start of the chapter, says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forevermore. Amen. Um, here's what they don't tell you when you become a Christian, or not everyone told me this when I became a Christian. Maybe someone told you this. Sometimes great faith leads to great anguish. Um, Paul, the man who wrote this letter, he was a disciple of Jesus, and um, Paul had great faith. Um, This guy uh, planted churches all over the Roman Empire. Um, This guy wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, This guy uh, visited the third heavens, whatever that is. Um, This guy uh, deeply, passionately loved Jesus. This man, uh, he had great faith. And the the book of Romans is one of the um, crown jewels of the New Testament, where he is just unpacking uh, the reason for that love for Jesus, the, the hope of the gospel, the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the first eight chapters. Um, let me just read to you how chapter eight ends so you could just put yourself in the shoes of how much this guy loved God and trusted Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter eight, it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It ends this way. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This man had great faith. He loved Jesus, and more importantly, he knew how much Jesus loved him. And yet, as we get into chapter 9, he goes from this, we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who has conquered for us, He gets into chapter 9 and says, and I also have unceasing sorrow and great anguish. I have unceasing sorrow and great anguish over my brothers and sisters, uh, really the Jewish people by and large. So he doesn't just have one person in mind, but he has a whole people group in mind. I think he probably had specific faces in mind. And after eight chapters of celebrating the hope we have in Jesus, he says, oh, and by the way, I also have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over those people that I love that don't believe a thing that I just said. Can anybody relate to that? The first thing I want you to see this morning is if you've ever felt great sorrow and unceasing anguish over someone that you deeply love in your life that doesn't know the love of God, you're not alone. Sometimes great faith leads to great anguish because if you are someone who has tasted of the love of God and the gospel, then it's going to bother you that other people haven't tasted of that same love, right? Like, if you have any relationships with a non-Christian at all, it should bother you that they don't know the hope and the life and the security and the peace and the joy that you have discovered. It'd be weird if it didn't. And so if you've ever felt great sorrow, if you felt the tense, whoever sent in the question, like whoever, if you've ever felt this way, how do I keep going? Um, I want you to hear this morning, that's not a question that lacks faith. I think that's a question that flows from faith. 
that's had a deep encounter with the love of God. And to the, um, the more that you love people, the more this is going to bother you. Because you love God so much, you've seen how well he's loved you, and then you love this person, and you want the best for them, and you know the best thing you've ever experienced, they haven't experienced yet. Sometimes great faith leads to great anguish. And the stronger your love for a person, the stronger the anguish you will feel. So this is a good question. Um, And it's a question, I want you to see this, that's been asked before. This is why we love the Bible as God's word. It is not an old book. It is a timeless book that God has written to address every question in every age. God knows the tension that you might feel this morning. Paul knew it. And so God inspires Paul to help us to speak into that tension this morning. And so what does God have to say to those of us who felt that great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Um, We're going to look at two things. Um, Number one, we're going to look at a word of freedom. And then number two, we're going to look at a word of invitation. Let's start with the word of freedom. We'll keep reading in verse 6. He writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. Um, I had a youth pastor growing up who would say all the time, just because you walk into McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. Kind of cheesy, but he was making a good point. Um, One of you got the dad joke there. Um, His point was, uh, just because you walk into a church, it does not make you a Christian. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, not everyone who descends from Israel is born into the family of Abraham. Not everyone who is born into Israel belongs to Israel. See, in Paul's day, there is a faulty view of salvation that people were prone to. Um, They thought, if we belong to Abraham's family, basically, if we're Jewish— Well, then we're saved because God, we know our Bibles, we know that God has promised to bless the whole world through our family. And so that means that we're the good guys, everyone else is the bad guys, kind of a misreading of what's going on in Genesis. We'll get back into that in the fall. Um, What's going on in Genesis is actually Jesus would come from this family, as Paul has just said, so Jesus is the blessing. But these guys kind of took on the idea, we're the good guys, everyone else is the bad guy. And so just by nature of our birthright and our cultural practices, that makes us saved. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, he challenged the Pharisees for that very notion. He challenged the Pharisees that believed that their Jewishness and their Jewish practices were what made them saved. And and so Jesus challenged that when he came into the world. Jesus' disciples had to challenge this faulty view of salvation in the early church. And I would argue we still have to challenge this faulty view of salvation today. Because wherever humans are involved, this faulty view of salvation tends to creep in. And, and, and you might call this faulty view of salvation, I bet you words are already popping into your mind. You might call this faulty view of salvation legalism. Um, I'm going to call it this morning formulaic. Uh, you'll see why. Whatever word you want to use for it, there's a faulty view of salvation that Paul's addressing here that I think that we all are prone to, myself included. And so let's talk about how this plays out in regards to children 
or, or those that you love and want to see meet Jesus. Um, if, if you have this faulty view of salvation, I think you can start to believe this. Um, if I just get my kids into the right youth group, if I just get my kids around the right people and keep them away from the wrong people, if I just do the right Bible studies at home and teach the right theology to them, then they'll love Jesus. Nailed it. It's, it's that simple. I pull these levers and out comes a Jesus-loving human being. But what Paul says is salvation is not that simple. Not all who are born into the nation of Israel that are around the word of God, the presence of God, who have all of these blessings, not all who are born into Israel belong to Israel. Salvation, it's not this formulaic thing that's just a matter of what family you're born into or what kind of background you have. Because you don't become a cheeseburger just because you step into the doors of McDonald's. And you don't become a Christian just because you're raised around Christian things. Salvation is not a formulaic thing. It is a matter of faith. Of trusting in the gospel promise that Jesus is a God who can save me from my sins. Who can defeat my death and give me the life that I'm longing for. It is only when you believe that promise in your heart for yourself that you become a Christian. The way Paul will say it in a few verses is that, hey, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, because sometimes you say stuff you don't actually believe, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. In other words, salvation is not a formulaic thing that someone can do for you. It is a faith thing that you must choose for yourself. And, and, and here's what that means for all of us who have felt the tension and the anguish of Romans 9 verses 1 to 5. That means God hasn't failed and neither of you. Um, See, what tends to happen uh, when someone we love walks away from the God we love, um, or maybe just um, in spite of our best efforts just continues to reject God, what tends to happen is uh, we either blame God or we blame ourselves. Um, Some of you, you blame God. You say, um, God, you said train up a child in the way he should go, and when he gets older, he will not depart from it. Not realizing that that's a proverb, not a promise. And so we have this faulty view of salvation that's formulaic. God, I pulled the levers, and so you must not have come through. And we begin to think, God, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Do you know how many hours we spent in the church growing up? And so for those who were involved in the church, um, who put their kids in Awana or whatever was the right program at the time, I think what we can begin to do when someone walks away is we can, we can blame God. We can think that maybe you've failed. And slowly but surely, if, if that's what you're doing, what you will find going on in your heart is that you begin to drift from your own walk with God. Because at some level, by blaming God, what we are believing is that he's just not fully worthy of my trust. Um, And if you've ever felt that way, my prayer has been that you would hear the words of verse 6 this morning. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write verse 6 just for you. 
Paul says in verses one to five, I have all of this anguish, I have all this sorrow, but verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here, this is a hard truth, but this is one that I believe will free you this morning. God never promised us that he would save our kids if we raised them around Christian things. And he never promised us he would save our spouse if we uh, were involved in the church and prayed for them. He never promised that he'd save the parents that we love and are reaching out to. Like, he never promised to save that coworker. He never promised that he would save the people that we love if we put them around Christian things. Never. Um, I wish that verse was in the Bible. If I were writing the book, I'd put that one in there. Um, I wish salvation were as formulaic as get in the right church and then poof, all the people that you love will meet Jesus and it'll be amazing. But salvation isn't that formulaic. Salvation is not a formulaic thing. It is a faith thing. And one of the quickest ways to ruin any relationship is to expect things that the other person has never promised. Um, This is true of marriage, friendship, um, probably parenting. My kids are too young for me to have that experience. But like, uh, this is true of any relationship you have. It's definitely true of your relationship with God. That the second you begin to expect of him things that he has never promised you, you will find bitterness and distance creep into your relationship with God. Because you're expecting something that he never promised. And so for some of you this morning, for some of us, bringing life and vitality back to our relationship with God, figuring out how do I keep worshiping him if this person I love doesn't, for some of us, it begins with recognizing where we have expected things that he has never promised. And to have an honest conversation with God about that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel that. I'm saying that you should talk to God about that. This is where it began for Paul, and it may be where it begins for you as well. Now, others of you, you're like, that's not my problem at all. You're feeling like, I am just a perfect person, never struggle without. Awesome, that's great. Let's talk about you. Um, Some of us blame God. Others of us, you just blame yourself. All the laughter stops in the room. And, and, And here's what this looks like. Um, you can begin to think, um, if I just put them in the right school, like if I just put them in a Christian school, maybe they would have turned out differently. Or for others of you, maybe it's if I didn't put them in that Christian bubble, maybe they wouldn't have gone so crazy when they went off to college. Or man, maybe if we had done more family devotionals at home, or maybe if, and the list goes on and on and on, and you carry this terrible burden as if somehow your child's unbelief is your fault. But as we just saw, that's not how salvation works. You can have a profound impact on your kids. We, we were driving yesterday uh, to a Mother's Day hike, and we were going to meet Karen there, and um, our oldest is sitting in the back seat, and she says, Dad, stop changing lanes so much. We're not in a hurry. 
I was like, wow, happy Mother's Day. You were having a profound, Karen, you were having a profound impact on shaping our oldest. You can have a significant impact on your kids. You can make them backseat drivers or not. You can make them, or some of you are like, it's not her fault. You should stop changing lanes, you know? Maybe if I teach her to drive, I could make her that gal that's always changing lanes. I don't know. You can have a big impact on your kids. Um, You can even be a blessing or a curse in their faith journey. Um, You could be, as they tell their testimony, a happy part of the story or a painful part of the story. But your actions cannot ultimately determine their testimony. Your actions cannot ultimately determine their faith. Salvation isn't a formulaic thing, it's a faith thing. And faith happens in the heart as a person trusts Jesus or does not. And if you read the Bible, I mean, you will see this is true. Um, in, In the pages of Scripture, some of the godliest people have children that grow up to want nothing to do with God. Um, I mean, start at the beginning with Father Abraham. Um, Father Abraham had many sons. um, And now we know everyone that grew up in the church. Uh, Some of them, really not fans of Jesus. Father Abraham. Um, Particularly, he had two sons that are mentioned in Romans here, and without getting off into that more, you have Isaac and Ishmael, who have very different destinies and very different trust at the center of their life. You move on. Uh, You get to the Exodus and God delivers Israel and you meet a guy named Aaron who is the first priest in Israel and he's crushing it. He, He has some off days too, but in the end, the guy loves God. He has two sons that don't. And you keep going. You got the prophet Samuel. Like this is where I'm at my Bible reading right now. I'm like, this guy's got it all figured out. And yet his sons don't walk with God like he did. You keep going, you'll sing King David, and on and on you go. You get to the New Testament, even Jesus is 11 for 12 with his disciples. You ever think about that? Like some of you, you're trying to be a better disciple maker. You're trying to be a better evangelist than Jesus. You're bearing this burden as if this is my fault. But unless you're going to say that Judas's unbelief was Jesus's fault, what you need to hear this morning is your child's unbelief is not your fault. You can have a profound impact on the people around you, but you cannot choose which God they will love and serve and worship with their life. Because salvation isn't a formulaic thing. That happens automatically when you pull the right levers and get them in the right context. Salvation is a faith thing. And according to the Bible, each person must decide for themselves what they believe. And look, I I know this doesn't take away from the angst that a lot of us feel. Um, and, And I don't think it's supposed to. You know, like... I'm not trying to explain away your feelings this morning. Um, God actually put in the Bible this unceasing sorrow and great angst so you would know, oh, I'm not crazy for feeling this. So this isn't meant to explain away your feelings. God put that in the Bible for a reason. But he also put in there, when you are feeling this way, here's what you need to know. I haven't failed and neither have you. Because salvation is not a formulaic thing. It is a faith thing. And I think God brought some of you here this morning to lift your head up 
and say, that's not your burden to carry anymore. It is not your fault. It is not your burden to carry anymore. And he wants to free you from that weight this morning. God hasn't failed, and neither have you. And that was going to be the end of the sermon. Some of you are like, God, you're not done yet? <laughs> no, because as I was thinking about all of this this week, um, here's what happened as I was thinking about all these things this week. Um, I told you, um, we're always going to have real talk in this series. I, I, I told you earlier, I wish salvation were formulaic. I have three young children. And only one of them is old enough to disagree with my driving habits. Like, they haven't formed their own thoughts about the world yet. All of that is still, like, molding. I wish so badly that I could just pull the right levers and guarantee, pow, all three of them will love Jesus. I wish that salvation were that formulaic. And so I'm sitting with this, and I'm like, God, I, I see what you're saying, but... Have you considered the formulaic view? Is legalism that bad? <laughs> and, and here's what God began to show me as I was thinking this. What God began to show me as I sat with that is, I think it's actually good news that salvation isn't a predictable formula. Because not only does that save me and Karen from this incredible burden, like if it were formulaic, you would constantly be like, I have to get this exactly right or that's my kid's eternity. Like, that is a pressure that no human is designed to bear. So this is where the Holy Spirit just began, like, hey, I know you're, you're 34. I, I understand your thoughts. I love you. But you don't actually want that. Because that would put an incredible burden on you and Karen. But what I felt like God began to say for um, me as the pastor that I want to share with you is it's not only that it would, it's not only that God saves Karen and me from this incredible burden of feeling like we've got to nail parenting and get it just right, but the fact that salvation is not formulaic also means that there is hope for everyone in our lives. Um, no matter how far from God they seem. And, and the same is true for people in your life. No matter how much you look at your person and go, Pastor, okay, very nice sermon there, but if you met this person I love, you would amend your sermon. This person is too far out there. Like, it's not just that they don't believe. Like, they are posting TikTok videos about why everyone's a moron to believe. I mean, you just, you, you got to meet this person. And what I would say to that is, um, you'd be surprised the kind of people I'm praying for, number one. But number two, the history of the Jesus movement is one long story of God saving the exact people that you never thought could be saved. And our boy Paul, who wrote Romans, is one of the best examples of that. If you're not familiar with this story, let me give you a little background on the author of the whole unceasing anguish and God not failing thing. Uh, this guy, you can read about this in the book of Acts, I believe chapter 8, he's out there killing Christians. He's no fan of Jesus. He doesn't like talk of the resurrection. He finds it inconceivable. And so he goes around hunting down, persecuting, and delivering Christians over to be killed. Until one day, in his own words, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. 
And Jesus Christ, literally, as he's rolling from one town to the next to do more sinning, to do more killing, Jesus Christ steps in the road and says, Paul, that's enough of that. His name was actually Saul, kind of a long story. Saul, that's enough of that. And he reveals himself in such a way that changes Paul's life. And so I would just say, man, if there's hope for a guy like Paul, there's probably hope for your person. There's probably hope for my persons. And see, if salvation were formulaic, there'd be no hope at all for a guy like that. I mean, we could debate like what the really bad sins are, but I think we could all agree, killing Christians, that probably puts you outside of the ideal formula, amen? But if salvation is a matter of faith, then that means God can show up at any moment in the lives of the people that we love and stand in the road and reveal himself in such a way that is so irresistible and beautiful that even the hardest skeptic can't help but respond with love and faith like our boy Paul did. And look, I I know it sounds impossible. I know I asked you to have a person in mind, so this isn't theoretical. I know that some of you are like, maybe Paul, not my person. Um, I, more real talk. I have people in my life um, that in just the last year, some certain events have happened where I've been praying, and I'm like, God, I'm not sure what more you have to do to get their attention. I'm not sure what new information or life-altering event could happen that would be the Jesus standing in the road, stopping Saul in his tracks, giving him a new life kind of moment. I have people in my life where I'm like, I, I don't know what could possibly happen that hasn't already happened for them. And maybe you have a person like that. And what I would say to you is what God said to me this week. If there's hope for a guy like Paul, then there's hope for the people that you love too. And so this leads us from a word of freedom that I hope you've received this morning to now a word of invitation. Um, Listen to how Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, uh, Jesus Uh, What a preacher this guy was. Listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed, and I can't get up and give you anything. It sounds weird. It's cultural. It made sense to them. Verse 8. I tell you, Even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked you for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let me start with Jesus is not saying here because I think we sometimes misunderstand this. Jesus is not saying, I'm like that bum in the story. 
that does not want to help you. But if you pester me and bug me enough, I just might. So have fun with prayer. It's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, hey, we all have that friend uh, who doesn't like to be inconvenienced, right? If you don't have that friend, you might be that friend. This is the person you would just never want to call to say, can you pick me up from the airport or can you help me move? Because you're like, I already know the answer. They don't like to be inconvenienced. Jesus says we all have that friend. And, and, and you know how that guy, even though he doesn't want to help you, but if you pester him enough and bug him enough and call him enough and not just text him, but actually call him, like who does that anymore? And show up at his door. If you pester him enough, you know how he, even that guy would help you? Well, then how much more do you think that your Father in Heaven is willing to help you? Don't miss that line, your Father in Heaven. I know it's easy in church to just skim right by that. Jesus is teaching them something that was radical in that day. Something I think we have to recover how radical it still is today. We just don't think about it. What Jesus is saying is, um, God is not some angry judge up in heaven with a lightning bolt just sitting around waiting for you to mess up so he could just pa crack you like Zeus and the Greeks think. God is not some impersonal force that kind of mysteriously holds the universe together but can't possibly be bothered to care about you or get involved in your life. What he's saying is at the center of reality there is a God in heaven who walks around with his heart on the outside of his chest for you. And moms, for as much as you love your kids, he is crazy about you. And as much as you want good things for your children, he wants to give you the best things. Is this how you think about God? Because this is the God we see revealed in Jesus Christ. A God who wears his heart on the outside of his chest for us. And that's not a theoretical, philosophical concept. We see the reality of that when this God puts on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and steps down into our broken world. And he is willing to have his heart ran through for you and me. So that by dying in our place for our sins, he could rise again and say, your sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. Life is available. You can live with me forever and experience the fullness of life. That's the heart of God. We have a Father in heaven whose heart towards us is kind. Who's crazy about us. And so here's the invitation Jesus gives. Based on that little phrase that little but radical understanding about the nature and character of God. Here's the invitation. He says, hey, so if you got something you care about, ask. If you have, let me put that in the context of today's message. If you have someone that you desperately want to see saved, if you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish over a person, why don't you ask him? I mean, this is the God. This isn't your buddy that might get you from the airport. This is the God that moves nations and history and is working all things according to his good and gracious will. This is the God that can do anything. If his heart towards you is kind and love, there's the invitation. Well, then ask him. Come to him. And not just once. Ask, seek, and knock. 
Keep coming. Here's the invitation from Jesus. I don't know any other religion that offers this. God is essentially saying, pester me like an annoying friend that won't stop. That's the invitation this morning. God looks at you as a loving father and says, come pester me. Not because you have to twist his arm. We already clarified that. But what he's saying is, hey, I want to hear from you. Come to me. Ask, seek, and knock. So if you have someone in your life that you desperately feel great anguish over, ask Jesus to show up in a way that they won't be able to deny. He's done it before. Read the story in Acts 9. Show up in the road, Jesus, the proverbial road, preferably not while they're driving. That's dangerous. We don't have donkeys anymore. We travel very fast. But show up in a way that they wouldn't be able to deny. And look, this isn't a formula. We have such a desire. We have, guys, we have such a desire to turn salvation into a formula. That we so often will turn this teaching into a prosperity gospel that says, just pray, just ask, and you'll get whatever you want. And it depends on your tradition. Some traditions will say, yeah, if you just pray, uh, then you'll get the health and the wealth that you're looking for. And we don't really do that in Baptist circles. We have better theology than that. What we tend to do is just say, hey, if you just obey the Bible and have a godly marriage and do your best with your kids, then your kids will love Jesus. But that's just another prosperity gospel that says, if you pull the levers, the formula will work this way. We have such a desire to turn salvation into a formula, but Jesus is not offering us a formula here. He is offering us something better. Look one more time at verse 13. He says, If if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What Jesus is offering here is nothing short of himself. The center of reality, there is God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that when you pray, it does often unleash good things in the universe. And you'll see that in Jesus' teaching on prayer elsewhere, that, man, when you pray, amazing things happen, but it's never predictable. And see, that's where people try to cut it off when Jesus says, ask anything in my name. And we're like, we don't want to hear the in my name part. We just, we just want to make this into a formula. What we see in the Bible is when we pray, good things happen, but it's never predictable. Because God is so much bigger than we are. And so he, sometimes the good that God gives us looks very different than we expected. And in almost every case for myself, the timing with which God delivers is not as ideal as my own timing. But here's what is predictable, Jesus says, and this is what you can bank your life on. Every time you pray, you can quote me on this, you could write it down. When we get to heaven, Jesus could tell me if I got this one wrong. Every time you pray, God will give you more of himself. He will meet you in that space as you ask, seek, and knock. What God is saying is when you come to me, there's not going to be a moment that I say, I don't want to hear it. I'm sick of you. Go to your room. Parents like you and me that are evil can have off days with our kids. God has never had an off day with us. He says, when you ask, how much more 
will your Father in heaven give his life-giving presence, the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him. And that's why we worship him. How can I worship God if my kids don't? The answer is not, he'll give you the stuff you want. The answer is that in spite of the fact that Jesus knows that we are evil, he came into the world to save us. And in spite of all the ways that God knew that we would drift throughout our Christian life, he is a loving father who is for us and invites us to come and ask and seek and knock. In the throne room of heaven, there is a being who looks at you this morning and says, I love you. It doesn't matter what you've done. I'm asking you, come pester me this morning. And this is why we worship him, because the promise is no matter what we've done, we've never gone so far that God does not want to give us more of himself. The God who is the source of life and love is saying, come this morning, ask, and I promise you, I'll give you more of myself. I'll give you more life. I'll give you more love. And that's the reason we worship him. If you became a Christian because you thought there was a magic formula, maybe this question is an opportunity for you to develop a deeper faith to realize that all the good things God has ever done for me, that's very kind, but that's not the reason to be a Christian. The reason to be a Christian is to say that he is the prize, that he is the one I love, that he is the source of life, and if I have nothing but him alone, I'll praise his name because it's more than worth it. Siri doesn't know how to respond to that. I hope we do. (laughs) And at the heart of prayer, that's what it's about. And so um, we're going to give you a chance to do that this morning. Um, But before we do, I want to close with a story about one of the most incredible women I've ever known. Um, Her name was Patricia Flumer, though I called her grandma. Um... And you guys know me as Pastor Chad. Uh, For a lot of years, my grandma prayed for a punk named Chad. Like, Like the last guy you would ever think would pick up a Bible and say good things about Jesus. And and I know I must have caused that woman so much grief. Um, I went from earning awards in Awana, like I looked like Patton up there with all this scripture I had memorized as a child. I went from earning awards in Awana to getting arrested and doing rock and roll and all the piercings and lifestyle that went with, I just, I know I caused that woman a lot of grief. But she never stopped praying for me. Um, And I know that not because she told me, Um, But because, like, at the heart of all of my rebellion and as far as I was running from God, um, I came home from college to visit them, my grandparents, and I walked in and heard my grandmother praying for me, for God to save my soul, to reveal himself to me. And I I was actually kind of offended. It's like, my life's great. You don't need to pray for me. It wasn't, by the way. I was in denial. She kept praying for me. And then came the moment where I realized my life wasn't okay. It 
all came crashing down around me. And in the mess, and everything falling apart, there's Jesus. Revealed himself to me. My life's never been the same since then. And I'm not up here saying I'm perfect. I'm a real work in progress still. But that was the moment everything turned. I went from a punk named Chad to a pastor named Chad who is trying to live more into the identity of son of God but still has some of the punk, if I'm being honest. And, and I share that story with you for two reasons. Number one, I want to remind us of what we heard last week because I think that was so profound. That our prayers do make a difference in the world. Because when we pray, we're not talking to our buddy that's willing to pick us up from the airport. We're talking to the God who moves empires and nations in history according to achieve his great will. So I want us to remember that the people you're praying for, it's not for naught that you're praying. Our prayers can have tremendous impact on eternity. But I tell you that also to, number two, I want us to remember that the difference that our prayers can make aren't even the main reason that we pray. My grandmother was praying for three young men. And she died with the record of one for three on us, grandkids. But that didn't deter her. I mean, to her dying day, my grandma, like right before she passed, she told me, hey, it's your turn to pick up. She never said I'm one for three, but in my own words, it was basically, hey, I'm one for three, you're young, why don't you continue this one on after I'm gone? It it never deterred her at the end. And, And I would also say this, I've met few people more full of the Holy Spirit than Patricia Flumer ever was. And I often wonder, if it was the years of praying for that punk named Chad and his two relatives that drove her to her knees before God and opened space for God to give him more of himself that shaped her to be the woman that I remember today. We pray because when we do, our Father in heaven has promised to give us more of himself. And knowing him gives us a life we could find nowhere else. And that's why we worship him, even as we wait for number one to see our prayers have a difference in the world. And so as we turn to respond to this message, um, here's what I want to invite you to do. Um, If you're type A, you probably noticed uh, sticky notes in the pews in front of you when you came in. What I want to invite you to do is write the name of that person that you've been thinking about throughout this message. That person that you feel unceasing anguish over. And and there's nothing magic about writing it on a paper, but it is a way to respond to this message, saying, God, I'm going to pester you today. And I'm going to keep pestering you. I'm not going to be perfect in my prayer, but this is someone that I, I believe what you say, and I want to pester you believing that these prayers could change this person's life, but for sure what I know will happen is you're going to give me more life through yourself. And so I want to encourage you in just a moment to write that person's name on that piece of paper. Take a couple of minutes if you need some time to just pray as you write that name. I know for some of you, it's going to take a lot of faith to write on a piece of paper, believing that God's not failed this morning. 
want to encourage us to respond in faith this morning. And then when you are ready, when you've written your name on your piece of paper, I want to invite you to come forward. And on your way to receive communion, I want to invite you to drop that piece of paper in the baskets you will see on either side of the stage next to our communion elements. Again, nothing magical about this, but I do think it is a way to express our faith that, God, I'm going to take you up on your invitation. I'm going to pester you this morning. And then once you place that in there, to pick up communion and to taste and see that God is good. We have a Father in heaven who loves us that is more than able to do anything that we could ask or imagine. And so... um, I'd invite you to take some time now to do that and then I'll come back up at the end and and I'll pray for us. Um, I will say this, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't have that person, you might be that person in someone else's life. What I wanna say is we are so glad that you're here. Um, What I would encourage you to do is don't come forward and fake something you don't believe and take elements you don't believe in yet. Like what I would encourage you to do is where you are, grab a connect card and just write a prayer. How can we be praying for you? Maybe you don't know what you believe about God yet, but could you use more prayer in your life just in case? I'd encourage you to take this time to write down how can we be praying for you and drop that in an offering box on your way out because not only is God saying come and pester me but we want to be a community that pesters one another and prays for one another amen all right let's take this time to respond to the word of god